Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This week's podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. To support the podcast, please visit www.buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. Support can be around the cost of a cup of coffee, and it goes a long way to support what I'm doing here at the Gravel Ride Podcast. This episode's my last Los Angeles recording of the podcast for a while, as I'm returning home to the rains of Northern California at the end of the month. Before I left, I wanted to make sure I had a chance to track down Zach, founder of Blackheart Bicycles out of Venice, California. Zach and his bikes have been on my radar for just over a year since he launched the company, so it was exciting to go visit him in Venice, go for a socially distanced ride, and check out some of the titanium he's been developing and how his own interests set him on a course to developing what is now the Blackheart Titanium frame set. Maybe you're like me. I've had some experience back with titanium bikes many, many years ago. But since I've been a gravel rider, I haven't been on a titanium bike. So I'd label myself as Thai Curious. It's a fascinating material with amazing benefits, as we've learned about in some of the other episodes. So it's exciting to sit down with Zach and dive into titanium as a material and the ride qualities it brings to the gravel cyclist. With that said, let's dive right into my interview with Zach. Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mr. Craig Dalton. I'm excited to have you. It's funny, you know, as you know, I've, I've been down in LA for three months now, and you were one of the people that were on my list to say, like, I would really like to actually meet you. Well, I'm down in LA and I've been so locked down via COVID. I appreciated you meeting me up at at uh, your facility and showing me the bikes and going for a socially distanced ride. Yeah, my facility. Yep, 100%. Uh, large 20,000 square foot warehouse. And, and to meet your dozens of employees was really fascinating, Zach. You saw, what's amazing is that you can see, um, you can see shipping, receiving, inventory, the executive suites all in one glance. It's yeah. Yeah. But no, anytime I, I was stoked that you were down here, you know, we connected like a year ago, maybe for the first time. And, uh, I always feel like, uh, the universe will work things out and it, it did. We were, we got a chance to go on a ride together and just, uh, shoot the, shoot the, you know what, for an hour or two. Yeah, that was fun. Well, let's get into it. I mean, I want the listener to understand a little bit more about Blackheart bikes origin story, but we all start off the podcast by learning a little bit more about you and how you got into cycling and, and you know, what, what excites you about it? Yeah, so I grew up in New Hampshire. Uh, I was born in 1980, so um, pre-internet and kind of in real life living, as they say today. Um, I grew up racing BMX, so 85, 86, 87, as soon as I could spin uh, a couple wheels, we were uh, I, I don't think people remember, or, or maybe a lot of people don't know about it, but back in the early mid-80s, BMX was like a big thing. There were uh, dirt tracks in every town, and just like you would have you know, soccer games or football games on the weekends, there was a BMX circuit. So I kind of traveled throughout the, the Northeast and uh, as far down as Virginia uh, doing races back on little aluminum BMX bikes with skinny tires and a bamboo seat post. Um, I forget the brand. Uh, Pook. Maybe it was a Pook. Um, but it was rad. You know, it had little checkered vans. And so it was kind of uh, uh, ingrained in my DNA from a young age. Uh, and then in the early 90s, mountain biking hit. 
Um, everybody had a mountain bike. No suspension. Like if you had a RockShox fork, you were you were super cool. Uh, I definitely did not. Uh, so got into mountain biking, and you know, it was just the it was the time the, the time when when you had a bike, it was freedom. And I, I know there are still places like that in the country, but uh, at least in Los Angeles, and a lot of my friends who have kids, you don't just tell your kid to go out and come back by sunset, and you just take your bike and go wherever and do whatever you want. So, a uh, bike really meant freedom back then. Uh, so I had like I had a Schwinn, and then I got an aluminum mongoose, and it was so light. I was so stoked on it, uh, and then I I kind of lost I lost cycling. I n- I never got into road biking when I was a kid, but I lost cycling once I got kind of past high school um, because I I grew up also skiing. I was a ski racer in uh, mostly out of Maine, out of Sunday River. Went to a ski academy there called Gould, raced in college at St. Lawrence University. And so I had this, my vision in life was to be a professional ski racer. And uh, for people who don't know the sport, especially back then, you know, if you were good enough after high school, you kind of went to the U.S. development team. uh, And I was definitely not good enough. So I went to college. (laughs) So I raced in college and it was fun. Um... Moved to New York City for three years, moved back to New Hampshire for a few years, and coached ski racing on the weekends to young kids, which was a blast. And it wasn't until I moved out to Los Angeles in 2008 that I got back into cycling or or got into cycling. Uh, I had a motocross bike at the time and pretty quickly realized that I was going um, going to... injure myself in a way that was not going to be, be uh, not going to be beneficial long term. I blew out my knee, I separated my shoulder and so my collarbones all funky now. But I sold my motocross bike and I bought my first road bike. And I just started riding, you know, I was the guy who showed up to the random groups that I found online and tried to keep up and would just get my doors blown off and would bonk and just really learn trial by fire. And just over the years, bought one bike after the other and got into like, oh, man, it's like it's lightweight. It's carbon. It's it's got to be the the coolest thing. Um, And just over the years, just kind of started thinking, hey, you know, I think maybe I'd like to explore something different. I was really getting sketched out about riding on busy roads. Uh, Texting was becoming a problem. And I had a mountain bike as well, but the mountain bike trails in L.A., most of them are fire roads. So it's kind of boring riding a mountain bike on fire roads. Uh, but riding a road bike on dirt is actually really fun. It's um, I kind of equate it to if you're driving a, like a Porsche 911 or a race car, my skill set, I could probably drive that car at 50% of its ability. And that would be like mountain biking on a uh, on a dirt road out here, or like the current capability of mountain bikes is so good. If you're going to push a, uh, a mountain bike these days, you kind of have to be pushing the limits and, and kind of bring some risk with it. But if you drive like a '84 GTI and you ring that thing out at 125 percent of the out of the uh, of its ability, you can have a ton of fun on it. So I got into riding gravel and bought a gravel bike, and uh, it was good, but didn't really have any life to it. I bought a couple cyclocross bikes, and they were great on dirt, but not on road. 
So come like 2017, I started looking for a bike that I wanted, and I think I thought I wanted something metal because uh, I love things that are made by hand, and I love metal and woodworking and things like that. Uh, kind of landed on titanium. Wanted one bike that I could ride on road, and one bike uh, the same bike I could ride off road, and. Um, I ended up deciding that, hey, why don't I just make my own bike uh, and make it in the sense that I would get someone to make it for me because I, I, I don't know how to weld and just didn't, didn't have the time to actually do that. And sorry, I, I kind of went from like my background straight into Blackheart. I, I hope that's okay, into the Blackheart origin story. No, it's, it's totally flowing naturally, this concept of w- what drove you to build that first bike. But designing a bike and having someone else build it and then starting a company, that's quite a leap. So talk about what went on there. Yeah, so um, I wanted a titanium all-road bike. And in fact, what I really wanted was a – there was a bike that I had seen um, that was a mix of, sta- of steel lugs, stainless steel lugs, and uh, carbon tubing. And that was my original thought was, why don't I do like 3D printed titanium lugs and carbon tubing? And my mind got like way ahead of any sort of realistic ability that I could put together. And, and that's really just like a, a really specialized thing where I, I think you kind of have to be a skilled worker and do it yourself. So um, I kind of I changed my approach and I was like, you know what? Titanium bikes are beautiful. I love the idea that they are a material that lasts forever. Um, and I started looking at companies that do tie bikes and there are, there are quite a few and a lot of them are in the U.S. And that's amazing. I like, totally respect it. And uh, but the issue was I, I just couldn't afford one. So I looked at what was available in Thai bikes that I could afford, and I just really didn't find exactly what I wanted, which was a really beautiful classic design that kind of echoed a classic road bike. Um, Didn't have a really big chunky fork or kind of a weird chainstay design to accommodate really big tire sizes. Uh, I was willing to um, compromise on the the max tire size in order to keep the, the clean lines and the classic look. Uh, I wanted something that handled like a road bike on-road. So it, it, it looked and handled like a road bike on-road. So when you've got a set of skinny wheels on there, uh, it doesn't stand out like a, a kind of a funky bike. It just, at first glance, you wouldn't even notice that it's a, an all-road or a gravel bike. But from ski racing, like, I love descending. I'm an okay climber, depending on, you know, the time of year and how much I've eaten lately. But descending all day long, I love uh, just ripping down uh, hills. Like, if anybody knows in the L.A. area, something like Latigo, where you can really just let it go. Um, it really just needed to be super intuitive in the handling, feel like an extension of your body, and flow really well in the downhills. But have that capability of a modern gravel bike off-road. So, again, stable on the descents, stable on the uphill, kind of not wandering. The, the front end shouldn't be popping up and wandering around. So I, I researched geometry, kind of nerded out on it, and came up with my own design. Um, tried to get as many sizes as I could within the lineup in order to fit as many riders as possible. Uh, and... I through this like random nerdy internet forum find out found out a Thai manufacturer in Taiwan. So I reached out to them and I like played a little bit of the oh I'm starting a bike company and I'm projecting X sales in the first year and I convinced them to make a uh, a prototype for me and got it in the mail and it was like 
okay. The geometry was a little off. Um, the the aesthetics were a little off, and so that was fall 2017. Uh, and then over the next couple years, I refined through prototypes the aesthetics, the fit and finish, and the geometry. Were you working with that same manufacturer? Same manufacturer. I mean, the quality's on point. There, there's some. Uh, it's it's one of the most renowned titanium manufacturers in the world. Some of the best bikes that uh, are on the market today come out of that factory. So the quality and the finish wasn't the issue. The issue was the minute details of like the gap between the top tube and the top of the head tube, and the top tube and the top of the seat tube where the seat clamp goes. Um, kind of the the. Um, the the ovalizing of the down tube, the sizing of the tubes, and basically getting the proportion of the design to actually all go together. And that's that's one thing I was missing for some of the brands that were out there was it was a good quality bike and had the everything on paper looked good, but when you actually looked at it visually, it didn't do it for me. So that's where uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to make my own bike so that the vision in my head would actually be brought to life. Amazing. And, and the execution is on point as someone who's oh, na- now been able to inspect it a little bit. I did notice the, the ovalization of the down tube and the fact that it, it switches the way in which it's ovalized down by the bottom bracket, presumably to provide a little bit more rigidity in the bottom bracket. Yeah. And it, it's, um, you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't do any testing where I was testing the percentage of stiffness at the bottom bracket or the, uh, watts saved at 40 miles an hour. You know, like that's one of the reasons why I started Blackheart was uh, back in 2017. Uh, gravel was was there, but still growing. And the mainstream cycling industry, which is it's still kind of doing every every frame coming out is lighter and stiffer and faster. And it just didn't matter to me. Like, I don't care if I'm going 43 kilometers an hour or 42 kilometers an hour. I don't care if I'm 15 seconds faster up a climb or not. Uh, what mattered to me was the uh, the feel, the capability, and the look of the bike. Um, and I've tried to bring that through the company, both in terms of uh, the, the approach to who are we engaging with? How are we selling the product or marketing the product? Um, what is our marketing approach? And you know, who do we have riding for us? And what sort of product are we offering? So the, the approach is trying to be a little bit softer in our intention and not going out with all these marketing terms of how amazing the bike is. It, it's really about uh, promoting the feeling of the bike. It's about engaging with ambassadors who are doing really cool things, but didn't win X race last year or don't have however many uh, ribbons or medals on their wall, which is awesome. Like no shade towards those folks who are doing that. But there are just some amazing people who are riding and doing some really cool things. Um, So we've we've built our ambassador base through personal relationships. And so far, we've got a a few really kind of interesting and diverse riders. And then for 2021, we're pushing to try and bring more women on board. It's been an intention for us since the beginning. But unfortunately, as far as I can tell, women are about 10% of the market. So finding women to engage with and and, uh, bring on as uh, ambassadors has been a challenge. So if there are any women out there who like the brand and and think they uh, echo the brand ethos, by all means, feel free to reach out and and we'd love to, to talk more. Um, but yeah, th- this idea of inclusivity and whether that means male, female, beginner rider, expert rider, 
um, is something that's important to us. And it's something that I've invested in, you know, personally, I've self-funded the company. So even from like the size range, so we make eight sizes of the frame, anywhere from someone who's five feet tall to six, five. Uh, I know that doesn't cover everybody, but we're trying to cover as many people as possible. And to be honest with you, we haven't sold any of the lowest, the, the smallest two sizes. Um, but we've got to make them because you can't be a company who says that we're inclusive and supports riders from, uh, you know, of all shapes and sizes, but then you just don't make a small, uh, an extra small size or an extra large size. So we're trying to live our, uh, our brand ethos and, uh, yeah, try, try and, trying to make a bike that people are soaked on. I want to drill back into the bike a little bit because there's a few things that I don't want to get missed by the listener. One, I want to note that you are a tall gentleman. So you're riding a you're riding a big bike. Yeah. Which is I think is good as a designer because you're thinking about the spectrum. You mentioned your desire to create a bike that has a, sort of a road-like aesthetic, very clean lines, which yep. has been achieved. But I think you minimize the versatility of it a little bit because it's not like you cannot accept a, a decent sized tire. At 650, I believe you can go out to about a 47, depending on the tire. Yeah, we can we can take a moment and nerd out on the specs. So uh, I'm 6'2". I ride the size 60, which uh, it's it's a little different than your normal or I guess your standard sizing these days because one of the things is I try and keep more of a horizontal top tube versus the sloping design that became popular with carbon bikes. Uh, when carbon bikes were designed, the carbon or first made, the carbon wasn't as stiff as it was today. And so by doing that compact design with a sloping top tube, you could make the bike stiffer easier. Um, so now like a, a 58 and a normal carbon road bike would be the equivalent of R60. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the specs in the frame, try and keep the short end as, as, um, as short as possible. So it's 422 on the chain stay and any shorter than that, we get tire clearance issues with the, uh, seat tube. The, the, the goal was, Hey, I love 650 by 47 or 48, the road plus they're super fun off road. And that's what I ride most of the times, just a big slick. And a up to like a 38, you can run a 40 slick on it on a 700, but that's that's kind of as big as you can go. Not by not not based on the chain stay restrictions or the seat stay restrictions. It's really you'll bump into the seat tube. Um, so then the head tubes slightly steeper than your gravel bike, maybe by half a degree. Um, trying to basically just. Um, Keep that steering nice and quick on road without going overboard and making it, it, it you know unstable on the descents on um, the downhill. Um, the newest sizes that we did, the 46, 49, and even the 52, we lengthened the top tube in order to get some, some uh, toe overlap clearance. And we did a more sloping top tube on the 46 and the 49, the small sizes. Because, you know, like I can test ride the size 60 all day long and say it's wonderful, but... I can't test ride the 46 and the 49. So I made the first round. We had a size 50 with a pretty standard top tube, non-sloping. And women were like, yeah, I can't, I can't stand over the bike. So the 46, 49, uh, we added the low, the smaller size or size. We sloped the top tube to give more sandover clearance. And then we kept the, um, the top tube looks a little long on paper, uh, for those smaller sizes, but, when you steepen the seat tube and you kind of uh, adjust the reach a little bit that way and you go with a shorter stem, 
it works out because you have less toe overlap issues. And yeah, it, it, it's kind of like a magic sauce, a formula that comes together to, to keep that that nice intuitive on-road handling, but then the, uh, the, the stableness off-road. Right. I think for a lot of listeners, they might fall in the category of Thai curious. So obviously, like steel's been around forever. Carbon bikes are very available. It's very kind of easy for the mass market brands to bring those bikes to market. But titanium's always had this allure for a lot of riders. Can you talk about the benefits of titanium and how it performs vis-a-vis these other frame materials? Yeah, 100%. Um, this is where I'll, I'll, I'll try and put on my sales hat, but at the end of the day... Honestly, man, like I think you can make a great bike out of carbon and you can make a really bad bike out of carbon. And this goes for anything with carbon, tie, aluminum, steel. Um, I have I've ridden bikes of every make and model of every material. And I've had aluminum bikes that ride great and ones that feel like a piece of wood. So the benefits of tie, if you're going to, you know, make me write it down, it's going to be that it is um, it has a bit of a snap to it that a lot of carbon bikes miss out on. Uh, Carbon these days is all about stiffness, and stiffness is great for racing, but I like what a lot of people will equate to like a lively feeling. And that's when the frame will actually give a little bit and it will spring back. Think about, you know, bending a metal pole and having it whip back to you, um, which you can do with carbon as well. But it's just not a characteristic that a lot of a lot of carbon bikes will go after. They're going out after stiffness and aerodynamics and weight. Whereas when, you've, when you're just dealing with round tubes with uh, titanium, because, you know, hydroforming them is, is a little bit of a challenge. There are some companies that are starting to do it. But titanium has a lively feel. It, it kind of it, it responds to you and will kind of flex and spring back on you. Um, it has a really nice smooth feel to it. So if you've ever ridden a, an aluminum bike, which is it's equated to kind of the chatter over some rough roads or a carbon bike that has that, Aluminum or tie really kind of um, a lot of people will talk about the um, the frequency of a material. So if you think of like hitting a baseball bat against a metal pole, it's going to vibrate in your hand. Uh, if you do that with all the different materials, different materials will vibrate at different frequencies and different um, amounts. And tie just really kind of soaks up those vibrations. So. Uh, if you're looking for a ride that you can't really define with your words and it's more of a feeling, I'd say tie is the material for you. It's also, uh, it doesn't rust. It's a lifetime material. It's beautiful. Um, you can restore it super easy by just giving it a, a kind of a touch up once a year and bring it, bring the shine back to new. Yeah, it's it's. I love it. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't go to any other material now that I've ridden one for so long. So when taking that material off road, it sounds like it's going to kind of absorb some of the chatter that often gets translated directly into the rider's body. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, you know, if if uh, if I'm honest, you know, a lot of that stuff can be taken up with a bigger tire or a different tire or a different pressure, but. Um, I think that you can feel it's a feeling. It's a feeling that you get on road. It's a feeling that you get off road and um, it's noticeable to the point where I have no problem telling someone that like tie is the best material for bikes that I've found. Um, You know, the the fork, uh, the the fork that we use is made out of carbon. Forks are different. 
Um, tie, you can do a titanium fork, but it's about twice as heavy as a carbon fork, which you, you'll feel that, you know, you'll feel that when you're turning, you'll feel that when you're climbing. Um, so a car, carbon is definitely the best material for forks. What you have to recognize though, is that, and everybody knows this, you know, not all carbon is created equal and you have to treat it different, differently than a metal, uh, differently than metal. So, we use an open mold carbon fork, so it's technically something that other brands can buy. Uh, but what we've done with the manufacturer is come up with a, a layup that we've developed over uh, three to four years with them. So the main issue that we saw with the fork that we are using um, is that when we were first using it, it it wasn't stiff enough. The lateral stiffness wasn't there. When you were climbing out of the saddle, you could hear the rotor tapping against the brakes because of that lateral flex. And uh, we went back to the manufacturer and said, hey, we need to increase the stiffness. We need to, to get it on par with the other premium forks that are out there. And so through round after round, um, our main benchmark for whether we're happy with the quality of our carbon fork or not is actually when we go through the uh, testing for approval for sale. So to sell in the U.S., uh, there's one set of guidelines that's um, CPSC or C, uh, I'm I always get it mixed up, CPSC or CSPC. Essentially, it's a single test where uh, you, you, you see if it basically performs as a fork. It's not very demanding. Uh, we, we got our shipment of forks from Taiwan, and then we take three samples and we give them to an independent company here in Southern California. So a lot of, a lot of buy, buy companies will just buy a fork and then resell it to the public, whether no matter where it came from either accepting the word of whoever they bought it from that it's been tested and it's safe for the market, or it has a brand name on there that they trust. What we do is we get our forks, we have them independently tested here in Southern California, not only to the U.S. standards, which are really not that strict, but also to the ISO standards. So the ISO standards are out of Europe, way more strict. Those are the ones where you see the carbon part in a vise with some sort of machine that's stress testing it, either through impact testing or fatigue testing. And there's seven individual tests to get a carbon fork approved. Um, what most companies will do, or a lot of companies will do, is they'll provide one sample for each of the seven tests and then test it once. And if it uh, is it passes that test, then they approve all the forks for test testing. What a lot of people don't know is that a fork can actually get like a hairline crack in it during that test and still pass. It's only if there's like a catastrophic failure. And so what we did was we made it, we got our fork to the point where a single fork can go through all seven tests without any sort of damage or any sort of failure, whether that's a hairline crack or anything, and come out the other side still in one piece in a perfect fork. And then we have the confidence to say, okay, this is as good as any other fork you can buy in the market. It is the aesthetic that we want, which gives a nice silhouette to a tire. Uh, it's not too chunky and funky, and it doesn't. I didn't want to have like rack bosses on there because I think it ruins the aesthetic. Uh, and again, this this bike isn't you know an, an off road hauler that you're going to be using to to bike pack through uh, you know Vietnam with, even though you could if you wanted to. Gotcha. So one of the challenges as a direct to consumer brand has obviously been just. Um, getting in front of customers, showing them the quality of the bike, allowing them to touch and feel it. How have you been addressing that both online and here in LA? Yeah, so uh, online is definitely a challenge. And a lot of DTC brands 
run into this issue. So whether it's you know a bike company or an apparel company, that journey from awareness of a brand to converting to a sale to then becoming a brand advocate is a lot longer for a DTC brand. So from a DTC perspective, we're we are definitely kind of cresting the awareness phase where more people are becoming aware of Blackheart. Um, but we and we have had orders outside the Los Angeles area, and most of those people find out about us through Instagram, and they're a bit more of an educated consumer who knows bike brands, have a, an idea of what they want already, can interpret geometry charts, have you know specific things that they're looking for. Um, so that's that's amazing. Uh, we also sell through three dealerships: um, Marin Service Corp. Uh, Marin Service Course up in uh, the the Bay Area. Uh, we sell through Piermont Bikes uh, just north of New York City, and then through Ski the Whites in Jackson, New Hampshire. And uh, part of that is, I think we'll get into the whole like dealership network and um, uh, retail strategy later, uh, kind of near the end of this conversation. So I'll stick to direct to consumer for now. So our primary growth um, has been in the Los Angeles area through word of mouth. Um, we've got a couple of guys and one woman who uh, ride for us here, uh, brand advocates, me out there, and just kind of talking to people and um, and doing kind of one on one sales with folks, which isn't isn't 100% scalable, you know, like, I can't go city to city to do that. So the long term strategy for for that is kind of wrapped up in uh, this new effort that I'm working on, which we'll talk about. Um, but primarily, it's it's really about brand awareness right now. And just through organic growth. Um, I reached out to most of the media outlets when I launched Blackheart in early 2020, and four of them picked them up, picked us up. Uh, I've got a test ride with a media outlet coming up this uh, spring, so I'm excited to get that out there. And uh, yeah, I've just really counted on authentic relationships to build the brand versus trying to do some sort of um, you know break the internet marketing ploy or uh, crushing your Instagram feed with with ads. Uh, it just doesn't it doesn't feel right. Um, I, I self-funded this company both with, you know, personal savings from my previous career and then also through um, a, a different uh, – another investment strategy where I invested my retirement fund into this called the Rob's, Rob's Investment. So I've really gone all in on this brand and this company. And because of that, I really am protective of it and treat it kind of as my baby. And I'm just not willing to go and kind of throw out these, um, these weird – or uh, crazy marketing strategies to try and be a flash in the pan versus trying to build something over time. That's uh, something that, that we believe in and, and want to do for the rest of our lives. Well, that's certainly comforting for any would-be buyer that you're committed to this <laughs> for the long haul. Especially since we offer a lifetime warranty on the frame and fork, we need to make sure that we're around to honor that lifetime warranty. Exactly. But if you are in LA, you've been doing pretty generous test ride programs. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, that's one thing that surprised me. Um, we started a test ride program, and my vision was eventually to you know move out of Los Angeles and move up to Lake Tahoe or Jackson, Wyoming, or something where you know it's more nature in my life. So I always thought that I would take this company with me wherever I went. But our test ride program has been really successful. We offer free test rides to anybody who wants to come by. 
for any reason. Uh, There's a guy who came by through or, or came through L.A. from Alabama and he was doing a charity ride and just said, hey, I'd, you know, I don't want to fly with my bike. Could I borrow one of your bikes for the charity ride? And I was like, yeah, man, come, you know, grab it, take it for a week. And, you know, what wheels do you need? And great. Have a nice life. It, it wasn't about making a sale. It was just about getting the bikes out there in the public. So the surprising thing has been we've had about 70% conversion on test rides. So, you know, most of the people coming to do a test ride are informed and they are are interested in considering a purchase. And once they go for a ride, uh, it kind of... I kind of say, like, don't go for a test ride unless you're actually serious about riding the bike because you'll probably want one. So you're going to take the whole experience up up level in the coming months. We jokingly were talking about Blackheart World Headquarters, which was a storage facility. The storage, storage unit. Let's let's be honest. Facility is way too kind. It's, it's a storage unit in Venice. It's... Um, it's pretty seedy, the, the local area, especially during the pandemic. Unfortunately, L.A. has um, seen a huge uptick in homeless, the homelessness crisis. So we are one with the community at all levels right now. But you're right. Um, because of the test ride program, I, I needed to find a place that was a permanent uh, permanent home here in Los Angeles. So I started looking at commercial garages or uh, larger commercial units, and the cost, it, it you know, it, it didn't make sense. It was just going to be really expensive to try, try and do something where I'm just funding it 100%. So part of my career, most of my career, I've worked in advertising and uh, marketing, and a lot of that was in the healthcare industry. But back in 2016, 2018, I got a little tired of that industry, a lot tired of that industry. And I started working for my friend who had a brand experience agency in Los Angeles. And I was super lucky to be hired to run a new piece of business that they had won. And for two years, I worked with Google and uh, oversaw the design concepting build and operation of some pop-up stores for them, both in New York and in Los Angeles, both the actual like physical design of the space, but then also the consumer uh, experience. And then at the same time, I worked with Eon Productions, which is the parent company for James Bond. And they had shot Spectre and sold in Austria. And the owner, Jack, had said, hey, you can shoot uh, like I'd love for you to shoot the movie here in Zolden, but uh, I'd love to also open up some sort of James Bond attraction. So uh, we were contracted to do the same thing. To uh, we, we didn't do the design of the building. That was handled by a local architect. But we did all the consumer experience inside uh, 007 Elements. Um, that's the name of it. It's, a, it's called a cinematic in- installation. It's at the top of the Zolden Ski Resort next to the gondola. And it basically takes you through... Um, you know, how do you make a James Bond film through the lens of Spectre? So character development and locations and technology and action sequences. So it was like a two-year crash course on where is retail evolving and how are consumers interacting with brands. And as I was looking for a space here in Los Angeles, I had this brainstorm that, you know, I'm, I'm not the only DTC brand in uh, the world. And there are other brands that have the same challenges that I do, uh, connecting with customers, building relationships, uh, converting. And so for apparel brands, uh, it's proven that a brand that sells out of a store will have a, a higher dollar per order than a brand that sells online. They'll also have a lower return rate because that consumer 
is going into a store and they're they're seeing, they're touching, they're trying on, and they're they're confirming that they want that product before they actually make the purchase. Um, and at the same time, I've I've had challenges getting uh, my bike into local dealers or into uh, national online retailers. Uh, I spent the entire fall developing a national list of local bike shops and cold calling them and following up and sending them information and offering to send out test bikes for them to try in person. Uh, And it was pretty fruitless. (laughs) Uh, And and I get it. You know, there are existing relationships and there are a ton of brands out there. So why why should they take on Blackheart? But at the end of the day, even if they were to take on my brand, I've I've built the brand and the price point in a way that it doesn't really work with the the existing retail model. The the margin doesn't work. I'd have to sell, you know, six bikes for every one that I, I sell in person. So I came up with this concept. It's a store called Luft, the word for German for air, which, um, you know, harks back to cycling cap style. And it has a historical nature in cycling. And then it's become a bit of a cult word now. And so March 1, I'm opening a store in Venice, California. And uh, it will be on Lincoln Boulevard. It's a beautiful space. And it essentially will be a collective of DTC brands who are showcasing their products to customers in real life. These are brands that were primarily started online, brands that you really don't get a chance to see anywhere. They're not really in stores. Um, You kind of have to order in order to see it and then return it if you don't like it. And all these brands, we're curating a collection of brands that are pushing cycling culture and style forward. I don't want brands in there that you can see at any local bike shop or the ones that are kind of the the um, the old guard. It's really about these new kind of funky young brands that are doing things different. And so far, we've got a few brands on board. We're currently in talks with a few others that we're super stoked on. Um, it'll be a culture store. And so it's not going to be a cafe, but we are going to offer free coffee to guests. Uh, we're, we've got a tea partner. We've got uh, some mezcal that'll be there, beer. Uh, It's really about just creating a space where people get into the habit of swinging by once a week to see what's new. Uh, We're encouraging each brand to think through limited edition product or early access to product. Um, We'll have... We're supporting the kind of small frame builder groups by showcasing uh, independent small frame builders. Max Pratt out of Rhode Island, um, Hearn from MMFG, they're going to have show bikes there, and that's free of charge to help support the kind of small frame builder industry. So we'll have a rotation of those. Uh, We'll be looking to bring in larger brands for pop-ups. So it's really about like the programming where every Thursday you're going to swing by because you know either a new cycling cap collaboration is launching or you just want to see what's new and say hi. Yeah, I think that's awesome and super exciting for the LA cycling community. Yeah, thanks, man. I, you know, th- there are some really rad shops out there and there are some br- some shops that out there that are doing some really cool, interesting things. And I envy those shops. And even just going now to do the build out during the day, uh, you know, in preparation for March 1, I just get a smile and I'm happy when I'm there. So that's what I envision for guests is I, I want the space to be when you walk in, you should be smiling because of what you see and the types of products that are there. And, you know, if it's a cycling apparel brand from Austria or from Australia, that's a huge ask to get someone to order five or $600 worth of stuff from overseas with, you know, not knowing what it feels like or that you're getting the right size. 
And so by having those brands in store, by allowing people to touch, try, and see, um, and then offering some sort of incentive to convert in store, the, the model is that uh, we'll have some small retail items, but the larger partner brands, you'll still order online and it'll be mailed to you just like you would order online, but we'll, we'll offer some sort of incentive to convert in store. And we think that combination of oh, I actually get to see the product in real life before I order it, and then I get some sort of incentive to convert. Uh, it'll be a different model that will bring new brands uh, into custom- consumers' hands that they normally just wouldn't, wouldn't really have the confidence to, to convert. Yeah. And we're so much about the community here on the podcast and in the Ridership Forum. It's really exciting to see community come to the, the real world, the physical world, yep. and create hubs for us to meet up, join up, socialize and ride. Yeah, yeah. And there's going to be programming out of it. I mean, obviously, COVID puts um, creates a problem for that. But the, the vision is kind of giving back three ways to the community. So the first way is by showcasing the independent frame builders of the U.S. by featuring their bikes for free. Uh, we'll have a rotation of those. Uh, we'll be doing... Um, We'll, we'll be doing pop-ups where a large brand will come in and do maybe a product launch in the middle of the space. So they'll be there in, in there for a month, but technically they'll only be there in, in there for three weeks. And then that fourth week, we will have a small business from L.A. who comes into the space, is able to sell their kind of T-shirts and hats and promote their brand for free. Uh, because they're doing good in the community and they just don't have the resources yet to to sell through a store or anything like that. So supporting local businesses and then charity events. So um, the first one that we'll do is unfortunately we won't be able to do like a launch event, but Grow Cycling is a new foundation fa- founded by Elliot Jackson, who's a pro, mount- uh, pro mountain biker. Uh, I met Elliot through Andrew, who's one of our uh, one of our ambassadors. And Elliot, through Grow, is uh, raising money to build a pump track in Inglewood. So trying to introduce young kids in different communities to cycling because of, obviously, the impact that it had on Elliot and the impact that cycling has on, on all people. Uh, so we have a, a Blackheart titanium frame built up with SRAM Force, ETAP Axis, 2 by some Maxxis tires, um, a set of Hunt Carbon gravel wheels. Uh, the raffle is going to launch March one to coincide with the launch of Blackheart or of Luft. We'll have the f- the bike in store there, and then oh, and it's it's custom painted by Nico, who goes by Ornamental Conifer on Instagram. He's an amazing painter. He's known for like hand painting Porsche 911s and just doing incredible designs. So Nico was very generous and offered to paint the bike for free in order to help with the the raffle and help with the donation. Um, SRAM, Hunt, uh, Maxis, and uh, Zip, SRAM, uh, they all donated to, um, to, to the bike. So we've got a full bike to donate. And yeah, it's it's super exciting. But but my point was, we'll be doing charity events pretty regularly as well to help raise money. So um, Ron Holden, who also rides for Blackheart, he started Ride for Black Lives in Los Angeles. So we'll do an event for him, do a ride, get hopefully post COVID, get a taco truck and a beer truck, and uh, get some of his t-shirts and hats in to sell to raise money for his charity. So yeah, it is really just about you know new cool brands doing fun culture forward and style forward things kind of paired with regular programming and, and a freshness to to help 
um, expand the expand and grow the cycling community here in Los Angeles. That's super exciting, Zach. Well, I appreciate the overview of Blackheart, and I'll put links for everybody to check out the beautiful titanium bikes you guys are putting out there. We'll put whatever links to the shop that are available at the time, but we know that March 1st is the goal. I'll, I'll send you the links. They're not up yet. They're, they're on the list of to-dos, which is long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it is. Well, best of luck with everything, Zach. I can't wait to see how it unfolds and uh, eventually to do an event in the space myself. Yeah, no, anytime, Craig. You're very welcome. Oh, we talked about you should do a live podcast out of the space when we can. Uh, great window viewing from Lincoln. Everybody can stand outside uh, post-COVID and cheer for you, just like um, like Good Morning America or something like that. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> I'm excited for that. Thanks, Zach. Yep, you're welcome. Talk to you soon, Craig. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining us, and thanks to Zach for spending time with us this week. As always, it's great to learn the backstory of these brands and how they arrive at their design philosophy and ultimately the manifestation of that vision in the frame set that you can see today. I'm also excited about his new retail project in Venice. I think it's exciting to have hubs of the gravel cycling community where people can visit and congregate when it's safe after COVID. So make sure to support what Zach's doing in the shop there. I'll put links to his social media handles and the shop website. So if you ever find yourself in the Los Angeles area, you can hit him up. Having seen the shops and heard about the brands that he's going to be working with, it's definitely going to be a shop that I want to visit. And heck, as we talked about on the podcast, I'd love to get down there and record a live episode with some of my Los Angeles friends. So look forward to that in 2021. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. 